0: Street Photography Magazine podcast, episode number 73, Patience and Pre-Visualization with Kelly Gorham. Hello and welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine, If you're listening to this podcast, you must have a strong interest in street photography or at least want to learn more about it. So I encourage you to pay a visit to us at streetphotographymagazine.com. We've been publishing Street Photography Magazine since 2013, and over the years we've created a vast library of interviews with top-notch street photographers, inspirational projects, and photo stories, by street photographers around the world, and also some instructional how-to articles, all of which are available to all active subscribers. In fact, we have just committed to expanding our instructional content by publishing at least one new how-to article each month, beginning with our August issue. So if you want to see for yourself, you can get a free trial issue just by visiting streetphotographymagazine.com free. Or just go to the website, and after a few seconds, you'll see a pop-up that offers you a free issue. It does the same thing. Our guest this week is Montana documentary photographer Kelly Gorham. He's a former photojournalist, a filmmaker, and director of visual media at Montana State University. In his filmmaker role, he's about to finish a PBS documentary film titled Mavericks, which is about the story behind the ascendancy of Montana skiers to the heights of competitive freestyle skiing. In fact, Kelly is a former competitive freestyle skier himself. Well into his career, Kelly attended the prestigious Calish Workshop for Visual Storytelling in Rochester, New York. He says it was an amazing experience that changed his life and how he approaches his work. As a longtime resident of Montana, Kelly learned patience by photographing wildlife in Yellowstone National Park, which is near his home. He would seek out a beautiful background and wait for hours and sometimes days for animals to wander through so he could make a few good frames. Now, he uses the same approach when photographing on the street. Whenever I conduct an interview, whether it's for a podcast or the magazine, I always try to learn something new from our guest. I figure if I learn something, you will too. On a personal note, I've been wanting to do more documentary work and I've been trying to become a better visual storyteller, but I knew something was missing fundamentally and I didn't know what, and it's been a frustrating experience trying to figure it out on my own. And then during my conversation with Kelly, he explained how he approaches a new documentary project and I had one of those aha moments. You know, the old adage that says, when a pupil is ready, the teacher appears. Well, that's what happened to me. Kelly opened my eyes to something that's been in front of me all along, and I didn't quite realize it at the time. Later, after thinking about our conversation and how much his advice meant to me, I realized I should have thanked him for it. I think I just did. So please take the time to listen to my conversation with Kelly Gorham, and I hope you will benefit from it as much as I did. Well, today I'm with Kelly Gorham. Kelly is uh, he's a Montana-based documentary photographer. He's a photojournalist. Uh, he's now a filmmaker. He's uh, making a new film for PBS that I hope he tells us about. Kelly, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Kelly, happened to catch our podcast uh, through Apple Podcasts, wrote me a nice note. I looked at his information, I looked at the work that he does, and I think he's somebody that we can all learn a lot from. Um, Like I said, he's uh, been a photojournalist, he's a commercial photographer, does a lot of documentary work, uh, really all over the country. And Kelly, I just wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about your journey in photography, how you got into it, and uh, how you also got into street photography as a result of that.
1: Sure. Well, the journey has been a long one. I have been interested in photography since I was a real little kid and took my first class in high school with a local workshop then decided to study photography in college. So I got a degree in photography. And while I was in college, uh, went to work almost immediately, I begged the editor at our local newspaper for any kind of a job. And they gave me an assignment that they didn't really enjoy doing. It was more busy work for them. But it was great for me to cut my teeth on it. And it kept me employed the entire summer. That would have been my sophomore year of college. I split my time between that and working for a local wedding photographer. So I did both of those things for two or three years during college in the summers and went from there. As soon as I got out of college, I was an independent photographer for a couple of years until I moved into staff newspaper work and I've remained a staff photographer since I've worked for a few different newspapers worked as a corporate photographer in Seattle and for the last 13 years I've been the director of visual media for Montana State University and then in addition to that I do a lot of freelance work for publications
0: Yeah, I always hear from people who wind up being a photographer at university that it's a pretty nice gig.
1: There are a lot of university photographers who are former news photographers.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Uh, A friend of mine is a a photographer at um, uh, Oberlin College in Ohio. He's been there for years. Matter of fact, we featured him in the magazine once. I tell you, you were a photojournalist, and I think you know most of the people who subscribe to our magazine or listen to our podcast are amateur photographers, and I think they can learn so much from people who are uh, photojournalists because I don't know. I mean, you, you shoot a lot, and you shoot a lot of different things, and you're under a lot of pressure, and I just wonder what. What was your learning experience from being a photojournalist? What did it do the most for you?
1: Well, my journalism path was a little unconventional. A lot of my peers that I know studied photojournalism, so they had a lot of that training in school. And my photography education was a little more orthodox and even fine art based. So when I had my first jobs at the newspaper, uh, I had to hit the ground running. It was, it was challenging. And I remember one time during that summer job in college, I was back in the dark room at the newspaper and I'm printing these black and white photos because this is back in the film day before digital and they would have to go do a paste up and make the pages manually. And I'm making these black and white prints, and one of the more veteran photographers comes in and he, he says, "Wow, look at those photos. Those are those are gorgeous. Those are like Ansel Adams prints. You could hang these on the wall." <laughs> so I'm beaming, right? And uh, then he he grabs a stack of them and throws them in the garbage can, <laughs> and he says, "That's not going to work for newsprint. Go back and print them all flatter." And huh. it was just one of those many. Hard lessons I had to learn. And very quickly, I realized I didn't have a clue what I was doing in the photojournalism world. And it was a lot of it self taught, a lot of it was just studying very intently the work of many great photojournalists and listening to the people who were kind enough to teach me those hard lessons. And sometimes they were very difficult lessons uh, in the form of harsh criticism. But I was open to all of it and tried to always move forward.
0: Who were some of your biggest influences in your photojournalism days?
1: Well, probably even going back before that to when I was first interested in photography, it was a lot of the, what I would say, great National Geographic photographers. um, Jody Cobb, Franz Lanting, uh, Garrett Ludwig, and... Later on, moving into the 90s, I was heavily influenced by people like James Nockway, of course. And uh, one image that really had an impact on me, and this is a, a brief story, I had been thinking of going more the commercial photography route in my early college years. And even had slight aspirations of heading to New York and being some kind of a fashion photographer. And I saw the South African photographer Kevin Carter's image of the vulture stalking the little girl in the Sudan that ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize. And when I saw that photo, it, it was like a brick to the head. I was so impacted, and I just kept looking at the photo. I couldn't look away, and I didn't even realize that anything was happening in the Sudan until I saw that photo what struck me was how just seeing one image could create that kind of awareness and have that impact on a person. And I thought, wow, what would it be like to try and make images like that? And had a conversation with one of my professors and she actually said, you know, I've always thought you had more of a mind of a, of a documentary photographer. Maybe you Hmm. need to go that direction.
0: So, have you had any photos like that in your career?
1: I wish. I don't <laughs> I I don't know. No, no, let's just be honest. I, I have not. I've never made an iconic photo. I've had I've had photos that I made that I thought were a great personal achievement, and I was alone in that thought. <laughs> and then I've had other photos that ended up being widely published and I still scratch my head and say, what, how did, how did everybody like that image? I almost didn't even keep that.
0: It's funny. Sometimes things you, you want to throw away. Others just see something in it that you don't.
1: Well, and I still once a year try to work with one of my friends that are news uh, or magazine photo editors and have them edit my portfolio for me. I think that's important. No matter how far along you are in your career, it's important to have somebody else look at your work and make sure that you're on track and being true to yourself. It might even be more important the further along you are because it's easy to become complacent. And even now it's amazing to go through that process and have somebody cut the photos that you're so proud of. Then, a photo you were thinking of getting rid of, they, they say, Oh, this is some of your best work. Really?
0: Yeah. You really have to get outside your own head
1: a lot. Well, that is the beauty of the craft and profession of picture editing or, or photo editing. A great photo editor will really guide a photographer through an assignment and they will help them not only navigate the assignment, but, bring out their best work. They really are like a sports coach.
0: That's a great analogy. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, oh, I interviewed, uh, a writer named Stephen McLaren a few months ago, earlier this year, he wrote a book called Magnum Streetwise about street photography created by a lot of the great Magnum photographers. And he had an opportunity to talk to many of them about their work. And he said, one of the things that you know, the the Magnum organization brings to the table is, you know, they they talk to each other a lot and they criticize each other a lot. And they get, can you imagine getting, you know, editing advice from that group of people? And, uh, you know, they say things like, you know, do more of this, do less of that. And from people who really know their stuff. So, you know, it's nice that you have the ability to to do that as well with experienced photo editors.
1: It is. I feel very fortunate. And a few years ago, I actually attended the Kalish workshop for visual storytelling. And that was, it had a profound impact on my career. That workshop is amazing how they organize it. The faculty are all top-notch picture editors and photographers and Looking at the bios of some of my classmates, I I wondered why they selected me to be there. I didn't feel like I belonged with that group. But it was an amazing week where you really dive into photo editing and uh, visual storytelling as it extends to video production as well. I realized after that week that after all those years, I didn't really know as much as I thought I did about looking at photos or looking at video since then it's it's been it's been a new world for me
0: so what has it done for you
1: i think it gave me the ability to look i don't want to say more critically at my work and other people's work but look at it in a different way and understand that sometimes you know the best photo isn't necessarily the right photo and to be able to take a step back and see how all the parts fit together. They also got into a lot of ethical discussions Mm. about, okay, you have this photo, but should you use this photo? And for what reason? And what is this image doing for the story? Is it helping? Is it hurting? What kind of an impact might it have on the people that are captured? And, you learn about those things in college when you're young, but it's great to have a reminder and it's great to sink your teeth into those kinds of conversations a little deeper.
0: You talk a lot about doing uh, documentary work and I was wondering what kind of advice you could give to somebody who's an amateur photographer, but wants to do a, a photo story on a particular subject and they don't really know how to start, how to approach it. Is there a framework or a workflow that that you could recommend that somebody use?
1: I begin projects like that, especially the longer form projects that I might spend weeks, months, or even years on, by trying to tell the story to myself. I I think about it and I think, okay, if I was gonna explain this to somebody just sitting across the table in a coffee shop, how would I how would I explain it to them? How would I tell them the story? And I make notes. And then I start to translate that to visuals and I start thinking about what will it take to make those visuals? Where do I have to go? And once I'm there, what do I think it's gonna look like? and how will I solve any potential issues? So there's a lot of pre-visualization involved. Part of that came from one of my professors in college, Rudy Dietrich. He was very big on pre-visualization of any type of a photo. He used to say, you need to think about it before you do it, and you need to try and understand it yourself. So I apply that to documentary work. And for example, this film I'm producing with PBS, I spent probably 10 years wrapping my head around the story before I even approached PBS.
0: It's funny you talked about pre-visualization. My my father-in-law was a pipe fitter in a steel mill. Didn't even finish high school. Still a very smart guy. And he used to say, it was in terms of doing physical work, Said, so if you can't picture it being done in your head, you can't do it. And that always resonated with me. And I think about that a lot when I'm trying to, to do something new. And it
1: always helps. Well, and I think you can apply that to photojournalism or candid photography or I guess street photography, in that you don't know what's going to happen. But if you can think about it a little bit in advance, and it might just be as much as where are you going? What's the location going to be and where do you want to be? Or maybe you're looking for light and then you're ready for something to happen. I have had many conversations with people about making photos in Yellowstone National Park, which is just down the road from where I live. And I've spent close to 30 years doing magazine assignments in Yellowstone. And the one thing you always see is people cruising up and down the roads. And as soon as they see another gaggle of photographers with their big lenses, they stop and they get out their big lens and (laughs) they make the same postcard photo as everybody else. Uh Sure. And, you know, let's face the facts that when you see a bear or a wolf or whatever you're looking for, they're usually not in the most photogenic setting. So you just end up with a photo of one of those animals. My approach has always been to say, well, I really like this particular area of the park. And I know that this particular animal tends to come through here at some point. So I will just plan on days or weeks Of going back to that same spot, and I know the times of day when it might have nice light, and just have a nice big giant thermos of tea and plenty of snacks, and wait and put myself in that position in that setting where I know it will be a nice photo and wait for something to happen. And you can say the same thing about street photography. In January, when I was in New York, I had some time between. My assignments I was doing, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go stand on a street corner in Midtown and wait. And it was wonderful. There was beautiful light splashing through in the late afternoon, and I stood there for an hour just making images. And it was so much fun, and it was relatively easy because I had the setting, I had the lighting. So all I had to do was be ready for interesting people to come through. And I apply it to anything. I can apply it to, like I said, Yellowstone or when I photograph, say, college football, um, a lot of the other photographers that are running up and down the sidelines, they, they make fun of me because I will pick a corner and I just sit there. But what I've done is I've picked the background I want and the light that I want. And the nice thing about football is eventually the action is going to come toward you and You've done everything you can in advance to be ready for that action to unfold in a nice scene.
0: So you set yourself up for success.
1: That's the plan.
0: That's uh, really something you were able to be so patient in New York. I mean, there's so much going on there. Um, When I go, I find it just overwhelming. Just don't seem to have it in me to sit still and just wait for things to happen.
1: It's tough in a big city for. Someone like me from Montana, where (laughs) we have a slower pace of life here and nobody gets too wound up about anything. And to be there with all the, the busyness. And I think that worked in my favor because it was so busy that mentally I almost had to shut down just to deal with it. So that forced me in a position to just sort of hang out because the more I tried to roam around, the more of a challenge it was for me to make sense of all of the, the busyness.
0: So, what's the trick? How are you able to shut your mind down like that?
1: <laughs> well, for me, I think it was no different in New York than it would be, on a beach in Hawaii or or the back country of Montana, is to just take a breath, and look around and just appreciate what's around you. And I think we've all been there where you might be somewhere and you see a lovely sunset or, or something like that. And you try and make a photo and the photo doesn't quite reflect the experience of seeing it. And so I try to be mindful of that. And this happens even on assignments of just taking a pause, taking a breath, looking around and just taking in my surroundings and trying to appreciate them and enjoy them. Then I'm ready to make photos.
0: So you talk about being on assignment. So when you're on assignment, I assume you have a list of shots you must get. Yes. And then do you make sure you get those in the can and then you start making ones that maybe they never even asked
1: for? That's right. That's exactly my approach. And a lot of times I'm fortunate that I'm working with an editor or an art director And they've helped me or they've even told me what my list is going to be. So I have a plan when I go out there. And that also makes it easier on assignment because you can use that as a roadmap and just work your way through it. And as you're working through it, you start seeing all these other things and you start making photos of those and those tend to be the really good photos. And in my experience, we tend to use the photos that weren't planned more than the photos we planned on. But even, for example, a football game, if I'm covering that for the university, well, the sports writers in the sports department, they need certain photos. But our marketing department needs different photos. And then maybe local media sports writers have reached out to me and asked for pictures. So I might actually keep a list with me, and I literally work my way through it and just keep crossing off items as I get them. And that can be challenging because you're still trying to make compelling images. So it's more than just having your shopping list and gathering the items. I might see, okay, here's number three. And then I have to work that a little bit. I can't just, I can't just sit there and, okay, click, I've got that. Mm-hmm. That one item might take me 30 minutes in the course of a game.
0: Now that's half the game. It is. Before we set this up, you were going on an assignment for a mountain biking shoot. And uh, I, myself, I'm a cyclist. I like to ride so i did i I found that fascinating. Tell me about that. What were you shooting?
1: Well, for a number of years now, I've been a contributing photographer to a publication called Mountain and Mountain is based out of Boulder, Colorado, and they cover several aspects of mountain life and culture uh primarily uh mountain sports base I would say and the editor now lives in missoula montana which is my hometown and about three hours away from where i'm currently living in bozeman and he said hey i want to get together several of our buddies that are mountain bikers and do these photos so went over there for it and he'd already planned out or scouted uh, several good spots for photos and that was really it um there was nothing too complicated about it, other than the fact that I couldn't ride because uh, I had a mountain biking accident Ooh. in May that resulted in reconstruction of my elbow. Ooh. And I'm still nursing my way through that injury, so I had to throw 50 pounds of gear on my back and hike up to these photo spots. And, you know, mountain bike trails are not the same as hiking trails. They're a little steeper, so it was it was a good amount of work. It, it helped me burn some of my, my calories I've been collecting lately.
0: You know, I see films of people doing mountain biking down these trails, and um, I know we're getting way off topic here, but I just have to ask you, I mean, you, obviously you've done it. I mean, I, I ride back in trails, you know, in the woods near me, but I go pretty slow. How do you do that so fast? And not kill yourself every time.
1: I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) You got hurt. Exactly. And yeah, my accident in May was a result of probably riding too fast on the wrong kind of a trail. It was a deeply rutted, very narrow single track. And I had a pedal strike that caused a chaotic sequence of events that resulted in me lawn darting and uh impacted my elbow in a negative way but i'm not the greatest mountain biker uh compared to the people that that are my friends that ride i i consider myself a novice compared to them because you know these people are taking huge air they're riding really fast they're riding down things that i find terrifying but <laughs> i i have been mountain biking for a number of years in Montana, and some of the trails tend to be adventurous
0: exciting i'm an old guy, so I take it nice and easy. yeah, speaking of the outdoors you're working on a film called Mavericks for PBS So what can you tell us about this film?
1: Well, in my past life, before photography, I was a competitive freestyle skier and the sport came kind of late to Montana. Uh, of course, there were people in the 60s and 70s that were skiing moguls and doing jumps. But in terms of organized competition, that didn't begin in Montana until about 1986. The rest of the country and skiing regions around the world already had organized competition and, and freestyle teams and coaching programs. So it came late to Montana, and my generation of kids that got into it then we didn't have much in the way of coaching. So we, we worked pretty hard and we just would have to watch a lot of freestyle competitions on ESPN and try to learn what they were doing. And we'd go out in the woods and throw ourselves off jumps and get hurt a lot trying to replicate (laughs) what we saw on TV. And we would coach each other and push each other a lot when you're in it you don't think about it because it's your reality and you're just living through it. Years later, in um, about 2006, I guess it was, um, after the Torino Winter Olympics, and I might have that year wrong, but a good friend of mine, Eric Burgest, retired after that, and that was his fourth Olympics. And it was the first time that I had taken a step back and really looked at his career because he was always my friend, right? I've known him since I was 14 mm-hmm. and we skied together and learned together. And while his path to success was like a rocket in mine, uh, I kept getting hurt. And so after about six years of competition, I was out of the sport from injuries, whereas Bergie just kept going. But after that Olympics, I really took a step back and looked at his career and I thought, wow, I mean, this is my friend. And he went from sleeping in his car and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to train in the summers in Lake Placid, New York, to a career that spanned four Olympics, one Olympic gold medal. He was world champion. He was national champion. And I suddenly became a fan of my own friend. And I'd been doing, working in journalism for a, a, while at that point, and I thought, wow, there's, there's a story here. That's interesting because it's not the usual, skiing success pedigree. So I started, working my way through it, and just like I talked about earlier, how I approach documentary projects, I, I had just started taking notes, and tell myself this story, and explain it to myself, and then I started talking with a friend who was an editor. I think he was editing at Outside Magazine at the time, and I sort of picked his brain and said, do you, do you think there's a magazine story here? And he said, I do, but I think it's a bigger story than just that. And he was right. So I spent more months, more years, and I realized, yeah, it's not a story about one person. It's about a sort of a grassroots group of people and effort. And that kept percolating and took more years. And while that was happening, there were these younger kids coming up that were starting to achieve a lot of success. And so then I had to step back and really look at the history and say, okay, we didn't start competing seriously in freestyle in Montana till 86. But by 89, we were sending skiers to national championships. And by 92, we had our first Olympic athlete. 98, our first gold medal. And in the time since, there's been another Olympic medal from another skier and multiple world champions and national champions. And that for me became the crux of the story of how did the people in this sport in this state get so good so quickly? And not to diminish the skiers from other regions at all because the skiers that come from New England or the the Rocky Mountains in Utah, Colorado, Nevada, they're amazing and they have these legacies in the skiing world. But again, for me the story was Montana. It came so late, but people had so much success so quickly. So the film over time became more of a story about montana and about the culture of montana and i realized we were on the right track with it when i was initially pitching it to pbs because i knew i was going to need some sort of a partner on this it was going to be too big of a project to just do on my own and i i knew it wouldn't be as good also so i had considered a few different large production places and after a couple initial conversations with the Scott Sterling, who's a director of production at Montana PBS. He helped me think about the story a little bit. He asked a lot of great questions and challenged me, but he also coming from that world was able to look at a lot of the potential pitfalls and how this film might actually be produced. And we were in a meeting with the station manager, Aaron Pruitt, and he asked me, he says, you know, this film can't just be about skiing. Nobody cares. Like what, what is this film really about? And Hmm. I think in a moment of frustration, I said, it's about hard work. It's about Montana. It's about how we get things done here. And he looked across the table and he says, that's your film. Let's get to work. The hero's journey. The hero's journey. But again, to not diminish that there are heroes in the skiing world from all over the place. When is it going to be available? We, we finished filming months ago. We've just released the trailers. Uh, people can see those at uh, montanapbs.org if they just search for Mavericks. Um, there's a link to it on my website as well. And right now we're in the process of editing the full film. And we have to do some fundraising. This is the, uh, the big sports business world. So we have to license Olympics footage. We have to license Hmm. World Cup footage and footage from other networks. And that footage costs money. So we're fundraising to cover those expenses. Our hope is that we would release the film uh, this winter. So winter of 21. Initially, we planned on a festival tour and some Premieres local premieres at theaters, and with the pandemic, I'm not sure how that's all going to work out. But the beauty is, is that eventually this will air on PBS, and we'll be able to enjoy it that way.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing it, and um, I'm going to watch the trailer as soon as we're done here today. Well, Kelly, before we go, I I have to talk about your portrait photography, particularly your environmental portraits something I've always loved. And I just wanted to ask you about, I guess your approach when you work with somebody um, and you want to get a good environmental portrait, but you've never met them before. You've never been in their place before, you know, what goes through your mind? How do you approach
1: that? Well, I think much of that for me came from the journalism background and this ever-present need to tell a story. I've always been a curious person by nature and I'm genuinely interested in people. And I I feel like the photos should communicate that. And when you think back to, you know, some of the great portrait photographers like Arnold Newman was maybe one of the first people to do portraits in this style where it's it's not just the portrait of the person, it's putting them in a setting that somehow communicates something about them. And I really enjoy that. I like location work. I also love making photos in the studio, but as a natural storyteller, it's fun to put people in a setting that says something about them. And that's really part of the process. When I have an assignment like that, I do my homework on the person, and I might even conduct a pre-interview with them. And I'm asking them the sorts of questions that would help me understand where I could go with this visually. And sometimes it's low-hanging fruit. If it's a scientist, then you can photograph them in a lab. Uh, But maybe depending on the sort of science they do, you realize, oh, it would make more sense to photograph you in a forest than inside a lab. So I think about those things, and then all the usual elements of a photo assignment come into play as well time of day, lighting what kind of equipment do I need, or can I just do this naturally?
0: What recommendation would you give somebody who's trying to do portraits on the street?
1: I've always found it best to be approachable and and have some intent. I'm not a fan of running up to somebody and jamming a camera in their face. And, you know, some people are, and that's fine. I don't feel like I'm able to tell that person's story that way. Uh, Their, their story just becomes a reaction to me if I was to do that. So I want to know about them. And, and maybe that comes back to the journalism as well. And, And maybe that's a difference between journalism and candid or street photography. In that journalism, you make the photo, but then you go interview them. And it could be a very brief interview just to learn their name. But you end up having contact with the individual and learning about them as opposed to assuming something about them. Sometimes I'll be out and about and I might see a person that just interests me in some way. And they're in an interesting setting. There's nice light. And I might make the photo. And then I'll just go up and introduce them, myself to them. And I'll say, Hey, I'm Kelly. I just made this photo of you. And I'll show them the photo. That's one beauty of digital photography mm-hmm. is the, the instant result. And I'll show them the photo and just tell them who I am and what I'm doing. And, and, you know, do you mind if I use this photo for this publication? Or do you mind if I just put this photo on my webpage? And people are generally pretty receptive. Especially when they can see the photo and they know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I notice on your on your website the people are obviously posing, but they just look so natural and relaxed. Um, and obviously, that comes from the photographer. I mean, how do you get people just to be themselves?
1: I talk to people, and I'm a fairly friendly person, and the setup time. Tends to be a great opportunity. So, I might be moving lights around or setting them up. And even if I have an assistant with me and they're doing much of that work, uh, I can be fiddling with something, which becomes a bit of a distraction or misdirection for the person. And so, you're able to have this casual conversation with them. And then I will begin by saying, Okay, I'm just going to do a few test photos while I work out. Mm My exposure and my lighting here. And I just keep rolling with that. I don't have any particular point where I say, okay, we're done with the setup and now we're starting for sure. (laughs) Yeah. That would just make them nervous. I just keep rolling. And before long, I, I say, okay, that's it. We're finished. And we do the same thing With a video interview as well, I feel like the worst thing you can do to make somebody tense up is to go in and, and then, you know, hit the clapper and and say, okay, (laughs) now we're, yeah. And I mean, that happens. That's, that's probably more than norm, but particularly with the, the interviews for Mavericks, you know, these are athletes that we were filming and they've had media training and they, often will go to their sort of canned media responses. So we might be fiddling and doing a setup and I'm just chit-chatting with them because I was a skier and we know each other. And so we're having this casual conversation. And what might happen is uh, Scott, the director, he would maybe just reach over and sort of poke me in the arm. And that was my cue that we're rolling. We're live now. The mics are hot. We're ready to go. And then I just gently would ease into a conversational style of interview. And we might get into that 20 minutes uh, before they realize it and say, so when are we going to start filming? And I'll say, oh, we've been filming for 30 minutes.
0: Well, I've got to thank you. You've been uh, great to talk to. I've learned a lot personally. Uh, I want to ask you before we go, Um, What are you working on right now? I I know we talked about Mavericks, but uh, any other big projects you're working on?
1: Well, it's an interesting time to be a photographer at a university. We're getting ready for school to begin in a month. And with the times that we're in, we're doing a lot of communications about uh, precautions that people can take to try and be safe. And So I'm producing a lot of PSA-style videos, and we also have some publications that uh, come out in the fall, so we're working through all the photo assignments on those right now. Those cover a wide range of things, from alumni profiles to research and general topics that are relevant to the university. That that keeps me pretty busy. This is generally a, a busy time of the year. And uh, Mavericks, of course, is all-consuming. So my evenings, my weekends are spent either working on that or at least mentally laboring over it.
0: So is the university opening up with full-time in-person classes or is it going to be a hybrid model? How are you handling that?
1: Yeah, so... Like a lot of universities, the plan is for it to be a hybrid model. And what we learned this spring is there were some classes that were effective uh, online. And some of the faculty liked those and wanted to continue. And there, of course, are other classes that have to occur in person. So we'll see how it goes. But the people at the university are putting a lot of effort into guiding this process and the students will start moving back to campus in a couple of weeks
0: yes i live near the university of virginia many of our friends and neighbors work there and they're working feverishly to figure out how they're going to do it this year it's going to be very different very different well anyway I wonder if you could just tell us how people can find you, where they can learn more about you, see more of your work.
1: Well, my website is www.gorhamphotography.com. And that's probably the best way to see work. And my social media handle is Kelly J. Gorham. So you can find me on Instagram.
0: And you spell it G-O-R-H-A-M, correct?
1: That's correct.
0: Well, Kelly, thank you very much. I appreciate you um, reaching out to us and I appreciate the time and your sharing your insight.
1: Thank you, Bob. It was great to be here.